0: Well, again, good morning and welcome to Christ the King. We're glad that y'all are here and we're going to begin uh, uh, talking over, probably over the next few weeks, about some things that we introduced or that I introduced uh, last week. And that is that uh, as we emerge from this pandemic, uh, every church that I know of in our presbytery, in our denomination, and really across denominational lines are trying to Uh, have fruitful discussions about what things are going to look like uh, after the pandemic. And no one that I've spoken to believes that we're just going to go back to uh, business as usual. Uh, Things have changed too much. Uh, We emerged from a very difficult political year, uh, economic year. uh, And so lots of things are going to be different. And last week we talked about this sermon Uh, in Acts chapter 2, that Peter gave on the day of Pentecost. And in that sermon, it's a long sermon, actually, and uh, full of incredible truths that, uh, in fact, we did some years ago, spend many uh, weeks on that sermon. But I pointed out a few things, and let me remind you what these are from his sermon Peter said in Acts chapter 2 that these were the last days. And he did that because the people that were, that were with Peter came out of uh, the upper room speaking in other tongues. And everybody's huge crowd of people ran to him and said, What is the meaning of this? What does this mean? This speaking in, in, in languages that obviously these Galileans don't know. But they're able to speak in these languages. What does it mean? And a lot has been said over the years. Many of you maybe have been in a Pentecostal church. Where they regularly practice uh, this uh, speaking in other tongues. Uh, and, And so there's some disagreement about what it is. But one thing that we all agree on. Is that because the reason we all agree. Is because Peter said it. That this speaking in tongues was a sign that we had just entered the last days, the days that spoke, uh, spoken by Joel the prophet. These are the last days, and so this this sign of people speaking in other languages, and people from all around the world, the known world that were in Jerusalem for Pentecost, understood what they were saying. So they were understandable languages, and it, and what was being signaled to us when I told you last week was it's the harvest of the last days that all of the Old Testament prophets spoke about. This harvest, and Peter says in his sermon, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams, they will, your young men will prophesy, your women, the young women will prophesy. There's going to be this outpouring of the Spirit on all humanity without distinction as to race, or sex, or age. Everyone would be experiencing this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And the speaking in tongues was a reversal of what had happened at the Tower of Babel. If you remember from Genesis chapter uh, 11, the Tower of Babel, God came down and confused people's languages. And people were scattered all over the world at that point. Well, this is the opposite of that. This is God gathering people. So the last days are going to be days of gathering people, the reunification of humanity. And that this, folks, is our destiny. As believers in Jesus, if you have been baptized uh, whether as an, uh, a child or as an adult, if you have pledged your life to Jesus and you've said, Jesus is Lord, He is my, my King, my Commander, my, my, my friend, my brother, my elder brother, the one that I pledge my life to you. If you've given your life to Him, then He is calling you into this great work of the last days to reunify humanity. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. That we're going to trust His Word and His Spirit to do the work in people's lives. We're not going to browbeat them into the kingdom of God. We're not going to shame them or scare them to death with with hell and all that. I don't know anybody that's ever uh, converted genuine faith in Christ because they're scared of hell. People come to Jesus because the Holy Spirit works in their heart and shows them the beauty of God's holiness in His Son on that tree, that cursed tree, dying for you, dying for me. That's the heart of the gospel. So we're to trust the Holy Spirit and look to this ultimate human, Jesus Christ. And so in your bulletin, we're going to read a passage, uh, and we're going to talk about the harvest uh, that God has got ahead for all of us. And I know that when we say harvest, Everyone thinks of evangelism. And evangelism can be really scary. And so let's just go together and scare ourselves this morning. Here we go. Read it in your bulletin or if you have a Bible, it's John 4. And we're going to start in verse 19. And I printed it from the New Living Translation. I actually like this one uh, for this verse. So here's, here we go. Verse 19. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me why it is... "...that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshipped. Jesus replied, "...believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem." You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know about Him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, the Father is looking for those who will worship Him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Just then his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask him, what do you want with her? Why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran to the village telling everyone, Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. But Jesus replied, I have a kind of food you know nothing about. So they thought, did someone bring him food while we were gone? Then Jesus explained, My nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing His work. You know the saying, four months between planting and harvest. But I say to you, wake up. Look around you. The fields are already ripe for harvest. The harvesters are paid... Good wages and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike. You know the saying, one plants, another harvests. And it's true. I sent you to harvest where you did not plant. Others had already done the work and now you will get to gather the harvest, this is the word of the Lord. So let's talk about. I know that when we talk about evangelism, we're going to go out and we're going to, you know, present the gospel to people. It sends many people. It just sends shivers through them. I mean, what are we going to? What if they ask me a question? I don't know. What am I going to do? you know, how is it going to work? I don't know what to say. Uh, maybe I shouldn't be saying anything because I mean, aren't they have rights to their own beliefs and to all of that? I would say, yes, 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 that is true. We do uh, struggle, some of us, not all of us, but some people, most I would say, struggle to just openly share your faith with someone else. Now, if someone came to you, let's say that you're sitting at Starbucks, and this happens to me all the time, people come right up to me and they say, you know, you are the most godly person I have ever seen. I cannot believe my eyes. There's like a glow around you of holiness and goodness. And uh, can you please tell me about your Savior? What is your hope that you have in you? I am just dying to know. Now, if that's not happening to you, it's because you don't pray enough. You don't give enough money to the church. You're not a good person. It only happens to good people like me. Okay, I'm trying to be funny, but it's no luck here this morning. Look, that rarely happens, if ever. But we are told to share our faith. And Jesus, in the Gospels, you see Him using all kinds of ways and means to reach into people's lives. And this is one of the most dramatic Uh, passages where he does this. Let me tell you real quickly, many of you know the story, but if you don't, in verses 1 through 18, the part we didn't read, they come to this well of Jacob in Samaria and they're tired. Jesus is exhausted. So he sends his disciples off to go get some food and while he's there sitting by the well, a Samaritan woman comes up. It's in the middle of the day. It's at noon. And Jesus asks her for a drink of water. Now, this was unheard of. It was scandalous. He broke every cultural norm known to that world. He spoke, first of all, to a woman. Rabbis were forbidden to speak to women. And secondly, she was a Samaritan. So she was like a really, uh, a, a, a woman of a race that the Jews despised. And likewise, the other way the Samaritans hated the Jews. Even though they were cousins, they were related. But they despised each other. He asks her for a drink, and she pushes back. She says, How is it that you, a Jew, would ask me for a drink, a woman of Samaria? And he says to her, He pushes back at her. He says, Well, if you knew the gift of God and who was speaking to you, you would ask me for living water. And she pushes back. She says, you don't even have a bucket or a rope. How are you going to get new water out of this well? Are you greater than Jacob, our father, who built this well? And he goes right back at her. It's a fantastic dialogue. I, I hope you'll go home today and read it. Jesus says to her, this water will leave you thirsty. The water I give will quench your thirst. And she says, give me that water. So I won't be thirsty again. And I won't have to come here to draw water. And we don't know what the tone that she used. So I'm not going to try to say, well, she said it you know, mean or sarcastic or whatever. Maybe she was genuine. We don't know. Just read the text. Give me this water so I don't have to come back here and so I'll never be thirsty. Right there she addresses the two problems of humanity, all humanity. Our thirst... And the fact that we have to go and find something to quench that thirst. Sometimes all the way to a well in the middle of the day. So Jesus says, fine, hey, go get your husband. And she says, I have no husband. And then He says to her, that's right, you don't have a husband. You've had five of them and the one you're with now you're not married to. And this is when she said, Sir, I perceive that you must be a prophet. Now, a lot has been said about this Samaritan woman. Was she a harlot? Was she a woman of ill repute? Was she just unlucky? In other words, every guy that married her died. And so she got married five times because they would die. Maybe she was the original black widow and was putting them to death so she could get the inheritance. We don't know. But she's out at a well at noon where, you know, she obviously didn't have any friends because the ladies would go to the well together and she's there by herself and she tells him, you know, she answers him, truthfully, I don't have a husband. And he said, that's right. You've had a lot of husbands. And the one you're with now is not your husband. That was unheard of in those days. Now everybody lives together, cats and dogs living together. You know, Didn't you all see Ghostbusters? Good night. Okay, Rick's going to scold me after church for telling jokes. All right. So anyway, Jesus breaks through all that, and that's a whole nother series, folks, breaking through the barriers between us... And the world around us, how do you do that? And what we think of with evangelism is, hey, we're going to put a crew together, we're going to do evangelism explosion, go knock on doors, and we're going to say, you know, if you die today, somebody opens the door and you jump in, hello, did you, if you die today, uh, where, where are you going to go? Are you going to go to heaven? And the person says, what? Evangelism explosion may have worked 50 years ago, doesn't work anymore. Confrontational monologue is not really the best way, at least not until you break through and you earn some passport. What we teach our men in journey is that, that in this day and age, in the postmodern post-Christian world, you've got to earn passport before you can start talking to somebody about truth, because everybody has their own kind of truth. Everybody has their own ideas about what God is, or who God is, or he, she, it, them, whatever they are. And that I can decide for myself what's right or wrong. You don't tell me what's right or wrong. I have rights. Read the Constitution. I mean, you go on and on and on. never ends. We're not living in a world that's saturated in Christianity like uh, the past 2,000 years, or 1,500 years, if you will. What we call Christendom, it's just not there. So Jesus, once he's able to gain passport, and where he does this is in verse 19. Sir, you must be a prophet. You see, he spent enough time with her, and he didn't right away confront her. He confronted her later when they started speaking about spirituality. So the first thing I want you to to know is this, and and you you already know this, but let me just make a point of it. Everyone loves to talk about metaphysical, spiritual things. Even atheists who claim they don't believe love to talk about it and would love to share with you their ideas. Problem is, most of us don't listen. We don't listen to what they're saying like Jesus did when the woman said, Give me this water so I won't thirst again, and so I won't have to come here. You see, in that, he heard something. And we don't listen. We're just thinking about the next answer we're going to give. And that's not okay anymore. We live in post-Christian, post-modern, post-everything. Zach Eswine wrote a book, Preaching to the Post-Everything World, which uh, Herman and I have read. I think Dawson's read it. He had to read it in school. A post-everything world. And that's where we are, folks. So first of all, people everywhere, you can, you can just automatically, when you enter into a conversation or relationship, know this, that that person thinks about spiritual things, is considering spiritual things, may even have their own version of spirituality... And that, so it's out there. It's right there. You just have to be willing to listen long enough so that they trust you. Sir, you must be a prophet. And she asks him the question of her day and in her life. Why do why the, the, you, Jews, say you've got to worship over here in Jerusalem? We Samaritans worship here in Mount Gerizim. Everyone wants to talk about their faith. Everyone will say, well, what's the big deal about being a Christian? What's so great about that? I know a lot of Christians, and they're hypocrites, and they, you know, they do these. same. haven't you watched the news? These nut jobs on TV that are prophesying all kinds of crazy stuff about politics and, and, and world events, and they, they, you know, crazy stuff. And now with the internet, I mean, you can just, there's no end. And Christians get sucked into this. And there's no... Truth, there's no real clarity of what is right. Now if that's true for us as Christians and we've got a Bible that is the truth, think of what it must be for people out there that really don't know what it's all about. They just create their own spirituality. So God is whatever I want Him to be or her or it or them. You just create your own, you create your own God. And this is what probably the majority of people today—they have their own gods. They have their thing that quenches their thirst, whatever it may be. Could be their career, could be money, could be sex, could be patriotism and the flag. It could be a political party. You name it. And if you talk to somebody, and after a while you find out that that they cannot—here's the thing: I I cannot live without. And here's the thing that nobody can tell. They start throwing out ultimatums. Those are their gods. Those are the things that they travel far and wide to the wells of this world to get water that will quench their soul. And if you just listen, then you can ask the questions. What makes you think money is going to protect you? because you live in America and the dollar has been reasonably stable. But I had a friend in seminary, he was a lawyer, in fact we shared the same birthday, and so we got to be real close, he was from Quito, Ecuador, very wealthy family, they came to seminary and he wanted to learn, first he learned English, then he enrolled in seminary, we got to be very close, and the, the, the money, I, I'm not sure if in Quito they use uh, uh, pesos, but It collapsed. And all their money dried up. They had plenty of money. They lived in a nice house and all, but you know, their kids, and one was going to medical school and one was over. And overnight, the money was gone. They had to leave their house and move into student housing, which was horrible. And they barely made it through seminary. They had to get people to give them money because the peso or whatever it is in Ecuador collapsed. And so here at Christ the King, we tell you all the time, don't trust these things. Okay to have it, okay to share it, okay to get that, but don't put your heart and soul into it. Don't let it become a treasure to you. And so every one of us has that somewhere, or maybe it's a number of things, that if this is taken away, or if, that doesn't, if I don't get this the way I want it, then God, maybe there's no God, or I'll make up another God, whoever I want Him to be. He, she, it, or them, whatever. And that's the culture we live in. That was the culture Jesus lived. Every culture is this way. And so what does He do to her questions about spirituality? He doesn't give her apologetics for why Jerusalem is right and Mount Gerizim is wrong. He doesn't doesn't go there. He doesn't try to argue with her about where we should worship or how we should worship. What he does is he tells her the truth about who God is. Look at verse 21 and and following. Believe me, woman. He's pleading with her. The time is coming when you're not... You know, where you worship is not the thing. Even the Jews knew that. Even the rabbis knew that. They, They knew that Mount Zion, that the temple mount, the only thing that made it special was the fact that God was there. Otherwise it would have just been another little hill out in the middle of nowhere and meant nothing. But because God said it's mine and He was there, holy is Mount Zion. It's where I love to look, David said. I want to live there. I want to live on the top of that mountain all my life. Why? Not because of its latitude and longitude, but because God was there. And Jesus tells her the truth. They all knew this. But somehow the place had taken the place of God. Do you get that? The place took the place of God Himself. This is just rank idolatry, folks. And it was being practiced by Jewish people who, I mean, they would have gone to their grave before ever having idolatry in their lives. But look, right there. You don't even know. So he tells her, he does confront her, and he's, you know, he does it in a, a good way. He says, look, you don't know what you're talking about. The time is coming. Indeed, it's here now. Why could he say that? Well, because he was there now. And he's getting ready to do something that he never did in all four Gospels. You never hear him say just outright, I am the Messiah. And he does it to this woman. He tells her. He doesn't bandy words. He doesn't give her anything. He says, I am Him. He actually says, Ego me. He says, I am that I am Him, which Dawson is doing a series in a few weeks. He'll start pick that up again on the I am saying. Jesus says, Ego me. He says, I, me, myself am the Messiah. He uses emphatic Greek. Same thing that the bush said to Moses when Moses said, What's your name? The bush said, In in Greek, the Greek translation is ego eimi. I am that I am. Jesus says ego eimi. i me, myself, am the Messiah. Wow. The Father is looking. You don't worship God in a temple. The the, the house, this building that's beautiful. I, I, I walk in, I go, how did we ever get this building? Anyway, here we are. But you know what, folks? It's just an—it's an ex-bank. It's just a bank. But what makes it—what makes it special on Sunday morning is that you're here. That's what—that's cha- the only difference. Otherwise, it's just a place, a longitude and a latitude on a map. But the fact that we are here, and God promises that He will be with us always, never leave us then we can be assured that He's here, present with us. And that we can worship Him in spirit and in truth. Spirit and in truth. Now, why was there this division between the Samaritans and uh, uh, the, the Jews? Because they were, the Samaritans were made up of the ten tribes. There was a civil war in Israel. And the ten northern tribes broke away under a, a rebel called Jeroboam. Because the son of Solomon, Rehoboam, didn't didn't get any of the wisdom of his fathers. He was kind of foolish. And he created an unsustainable relationship with the ten northern tribes. And so they broke up and they had a war and they separated. And so in order to uh, capture the people of those ten tribes and make sure they wouldn't drift back to Jerusalem for worship, Jeroboam, made two golden calves. One wasn't enough. The one that destroyed the people coming out of Israel or out of Egypt wasn't enough. No, Jeroboam makes two. And he puts one in Dan he puts one in Bethel and he says, ten tribes of Israel, you don't have to bother going to Jerusalem. I'll go down there anymore. I mean yeah, stay here. You don't have to travel. You can you don't have to commute. You can watch on YouTube. From your house, you can worship the Lord. Right here. And golden calves, look how great. And so from that time until that day, in fact, during the Persian occupation of Judea and Israel and the captivity, the Persians helped them build a temple on Mount Gerizim. You can go online. You can, I actually did. I went and looked at it. Just the temple that's torn down. And during the rebellion of the Maccabees in 110 B.C., uh, before Jesus came, the, the Maccabee family and the zealots of, of Judea uh, destroyed the temple on Mount Gerizim. They pulled it down to the ground because they wanted everybody to go to Jerusalem. So there's this, this incredible context of hostility and false worship and false gods. But Jesus doesn't bother with... What He does is He goes straight to the Scripture, straight to the Word of God, which was His meat and His drink, to do God's will. And like like Moses, He tells the woman, you shall have no other gods before Me. You shall make no graven image. He reminds her, you know the temple on Gerizim that you're talking about, that was a false temple. You can't put God in a box. Look what he, he quotes. He, he's quoting by by implication. Solomon, his forefather. Will God really dwell on the earth? Even the heavens, the highest heavens, cannot contain you. This was Solomon's. Prayer, at the dedication of the temple, he was kneeling down on a, on a steps of, of gold that had him elevated, and he was on his knees. The king was on his knees to the true king, and he said, "You don't dwell in a temple like this temple I've built. How much less?" The heavens cannot contain you. Who am I? This great King Solomon says, Who am I that I could build a temple for you? The only thing that's good for you is a place for us to sacrifice. Nothing can hold you. And Jesus is reminding this Samaritan woman of those truths about God. God's nature. You can't make an image of Him. How could you? A bull, really? A stone person, uh, you know, like Dagon. This the statue of Dagon as God, or or Chemosh, or or Marduk, or whoever. There, could you possibly? How could you contain it in there? And besides, you made it with your own hands. I mean, really, Jesus is Jesus is pressing in. And we're going to have to do that, folks. To reach people for Christ, you're going to have to press in and say, are you really going to trust a God that you made up yourself? Well, I have this idea. I think God is just this and this and this. And they give you their thing. Listen to them. Whatever they think God is, listen. And then you can ask them some questions. Well, if, if, that's, your, if that's your functional God, if that's the thing you think is God... Isn't it just you? Didn't you just make it up? Isn't it just you? Have some moral integrity and say, yeah, this is me. I just created this God. This is what I think He's like. He, she, it, them. I think God is this. Well, you've just made Him or her or whatever. It doesn't mean that it's true. You know, I want to believe that I can fly with my, without an airplane, with my arms. It doesn't matter how hard I believe, I'll never get off the ground. I don't know what's wrong with us, folks. We need the truth. We need the light. And Jesus is that light. Will God truly dwell on earth, even the highest heavens? That's the truth. So look, he, he addresses her questions about spirituality. Once he's got passport and he can go in and talk to her, he starts talking about her. Well, I understand what you believe, but what about this? And he takes her to the scripture. Then he finds, this is brilliant, please listen, he finds common ground. You see, you, I believe that we can talk to anybody, no matter what their religion, even if they don't have a religion. You can find common ground if you want to. And he finds common ground with this woman around her statement about Messiah. See, the Samaritans and the Jews, they disagreed about everything, but they both believed that Messiah would be coming. They may not even have agreed of who Messiah might be, but they knew that Messiah would come and he would clear up all of these things. And so Jesus doesn't waste any time. He says, I am He. He found common ground with her. The one thing that the two of they couldn't agree on, Mount Gerizim, Jerusalem, any of that, none of that. But the one thing they could agree on was Messiah. Said, yep, Messiah. Hey, I'm Him. Now this shook this woman, and you have to read the whole narrative to get why, but in any case, she goes to the town, and she tells everybody, you've got to come out here and see Uh, This man, while that's happening, the disciples return. And they ask him, what are you doing? Have something to eat. And he said, no, I'm not going to have anything to eat. I have food. Something is nourishing me. And so, let me put this before you folks. As your pastor, uh, when when COVID ends, look, we cannot sustain our church with a hundred members. Not possible. And we bought this building intending to grow. And I know the challenges of sharing our faith. We've talked about it in our meetings, in the session. What is the way that we're going to reach other people for Christ? And so, We need to think about, do we even want to do that? Do you as a congregation want to see people that believe in who knows what, come to Christ and find life in Him? Are you sure that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? Are you positive? Is it your meat and your drink? Is it what nourishes you? You see a lot of people, and I think people even in a church like ours, which is, I mean, we're very biblical. We stick with all the Bible. I think a lot of people come to religion and even to Jesus and say, you know, I need a boost. I need a help here. And they take Christ and they put Him like an appendage. You know, I've got my career, I've got my family, I need some religion. I got Jesus. I put him in and but but they'll tell everybody Jesus is first place in my life. He's number 1. That's the worst possible thing that you can do in your life is make Jesus number 1. You know why? Cuz that means there's a number 2 and a number 3 and a number 4 let me ask you this. What if Jesus is not number one? What if He is every number? What if He is all your number two, all your number three, all your number four? What if it's not Jesus first, church for God first, then family, then church, then this? What if Jesus Christ, the Savior, suffuses and goes into everything about you So there's no rank and order of anything. He just is everything. So when our musicians come up here and play, I've told them over and over again that that, that worship, the fact that they are playing this music, God fills the music with His Spirit. And it goes out in a way that is not like anything else and touches us. You're listening to a sermon that, that will touch and move you in some direction, hopefully in a good one, We watch movies, we see things, we talk to people, we have relationships. And if those every single one of those things is saturated with God, then they they take on His meaning, His destiny for them. And His destiny for music is not to erase it. When we get to heaven, we're just all standing around in white robes going, you know, well, there will be some, they call them Presbyterians they will be over on that side and they won't be moving. They'll just be standing there. And the most movement might be out of their eyes. And if they do reach for anything, it will be the Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin. Now, I'm making fun of my own tribe because that's, I love my tribe. I love being a Presbyterian. But listen, folks. He's going to take everything good in this world is going to be in the next world. Music and beauty and art and glory and surfing and motorcycle riding, everything. All your pets are going to come back. Maybe not such a good thing. The the idea is this. I'm not trying to be trifle. He said, God, the new creation is going to be robust, filled with color and glory and goodness and beauty. And he's asking us to enter in and get people to see that and want to be a part of that eternal life so that the grave is not just the end of your life. And in a generation or two, even if you're Dale Carnegie, a few generations nobody even remembers. I bet that most of the people that we know don't know why there's a Carnegie Hall other than it's Carnegie Hall. They're forgotten. We forget. And then it's gone. And folks, that is not what you were made for. That is not what God created. That's not why He put His image in us. And Jesus looked at this Samaritan woman, this, you know, questionable lady. I mean, really. And He saw nothing but glory and beauty. And I hope, folks, as we go forward that we see that. And why? Why should we see people like that? Let me run to the end because I've gone way over. I'm so sorry. In this book, the Gospel of John, we're reading in the fourth chapter. In the twelfth chapter, some Greeks came to the disciples, to Philip and the other disciples, and said, Sir, we would see Jesus. We would like to see Jesus. And Philip and the other guys said, Wow, I don't know these Greeks. You know, we don't have anything to do. We can't talk to Greeks. We can't eat with Greeks. We can't be around Greeks. We don't, you know, Greeks are Gentiles. That's the bad people. And they're here and they want to talk to Jesus. What are we going to do? And so they come to Jesus and they said, There's some Greeks over here. They want to talk to you. And Jesus says this. You would have thought that he would have said, Oh, isn't that sweet? Have them come in. Let me talk to them because I want them to come into the kingdom. Not what he did. Here's what he said. It's shocking. In answer to them saying, the Greeks are here to see you, Jesus says this, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he talks about his death. This is the motive, folks, for us to go and share our faith, however we do it. This... This is the hour. It's come. The Son of Man is to be glorified. Listen to what he says. Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it cannot bear fruit. It can't become more of itself unless it dies. You see, Jesus did not die, folks, so that we could expand our tribe here at Christ the King. As nice as that might be. He came to create more of Himself. More little images of God. Heads of wheat filled and heavy and ready to go and be planted like us. He's saying, I'm going into the ground, but and unless I die, unless I go to the cross, unless this happens, the world will be a desert, it will be empty. That was in response to his enemies and people foreign to him coming to him. Folks, we've got to start seeing the people. We must see the people the way our Savior did, like he looked at the Samaritan, like he looked at the Greeks. It doesn't matter if they're Republicans or Democrats or Communists or Muslim or whatever. What does it matter? You know why? Because he went in the ground for you. I don't even know why I'm here. Other than he condescended to go in the ground for me. Think about that. It makes us, it gives us an incredible motivation to love others that are not like us and share with them the kingdom of God and this Savior who looks at them and loves them for who they are. And if he can save Chuck Isaac, if he can save, uh, I, I won't name any of you, but if he can save you, and I don't know all your baggage and junk in your life, for those of you on YouTube, good luck. I mean, who knows what's out there? If he can reach down that low and get me, then I know he can get the Samaritan woman, and I know he can get the Greeks, and I know he can get everybody else. Are you ready to do that, Christ the King? It's yes or no. Okay, I have one yes from Rob. Thank you. You get a gold star. There's treasure merit in heaven for you. Anyone else? Yes, yes. We want to see people come to Christ. We don't want to twist their arm. We want them to know they're loved and cared for and that Jesus went into the ground like a grain of wheat for them. Will you trust him? This has got to be our mission, folks, going forward. Will you do it? Will you trust him? I hope you will. Father, thanks. Uh, I know my knees not together uh, when I think about evangelism. and It's not easy, but we're going to do it. Uh, Some of us. We're going to get out there and try to to share our faith with people, our lives with people, people that need you like we did. I mean, I remember where I was when you found me, and nobody in this room would believe it if I told them. And a lot of us have that story. You reached down into the gutter and got us out. So listen to our prayers, Father and our cries for mercy. Help us, save us, and have mercy on us, we pray. Amen.